so I'm not an expert on Juneteenth just because I'm black. And But and now I'm helping the company sort of navigate, like, do we have a day off? Do we not have a day off? Wanji, what do you think? I don't know. There's a reason why I'm here. And I really feel, as I said before, I really view everything that happens to me as something, you know, there's like a higher purpose. And I just, it, it you know, sort of my faith gives me strength to go on even when I'm really tired and really cranky and I really don't want to do it. Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, insight and inspiration to thrive at work. I'm Ken Kennard, and I'm joined by Dr. Chip Roper and Sarah Evers. This is our second conversation with Wanji Walcott. We first talked with Wanji in May of 2020, early in the pandemic, and her astute insight made her a fan favorite during our Resilience webinar series. This conversation was recorded on October 29th, 2020, and we're delighted to bring her back for our podcast. Sarah, tell us about our guest. Wanji Walcott is the Executive Vice President, the Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at Discover Financial Services, a leading digital bank and payment services company. Wanji is responsible for leading Discover's legal team, advising the Executive Committee and supporting the Board of Directors. She's an experienced legal executive, and Wanji previously held positions at American Express, Pillsbury, and Lockheed Martin. She's earned several awards for corporate legal work, including being named one of Savoy Magazine's most influential black executives in corporate America in 2020. Chip, when did you first meet Wanji? Wanji and I met four or five years ago. We were introduced by a mutual friend. And at the time, Wanji was the executive sponsor for the Employee Christian Network at American Express. And um, it's like one of these best kept secrets in corporate land that there's all these networks of Christians that meet together underneath the official sanction of the, the corporations where they work. And she was she was involved with the one at Amex. So that's how I met Wanji. And I'm looking forward to the conversation with her today because it spotlights a theme that has surfaced for us during the pandemic. And it's really the difference between short-term resilience and long-term resilience. Because from one lens, resilience is the ability to get knocked down and get right back up. It's how we deal with an acute crisis. But as this has dragged on, we've realized here at VOCA that resilience is also about the long-term. It's synonymous with endurance. It's the ability to keep going and keep going well. And in that sense, resilience is an antidote for burnout. So I'm anxious to hear her insights about how we prevent that. How about you, Sarah? Well, Wanji gives us a few practical takeaways on how to adapt your leadership in this changing climate. She talks about how she adjusted her schedule and reinvested her time to adapt to the ongoing pandemic demands, which required her to shift to manage her people virtually. Ken, what about you? What I like about Wanji's interview is that we get to see what resilience looks like when a major cultural test hits the executive level. You know, here she found herself in an interesting position in the middle of 2020 when racial injustice was rising to the national stage again, and she had to help discover, navigate those uncharted waters. Let's get to Chip's interview with Wanji. Wanji, welcome back. Great to have you back. Um... Let's just jump in. I mean, it's been it's been seven months or so that we've been in this crazy mode. And when we were talking, uh, I I actually just checked. It was May seventh, so it was it was, it was you know four or five months ago. Um, you know, you were talking about how amazed you were at how easily you were able to shift certain things to virtual and how everybody had pulled together and that kind of thing. And it was early on. We didn't talk about time horizons and how long all this was going to last. We didn't know, but. 
you know, all of the, everybody along the way was saying two months and then, you know, it just keeps getting longer and longer. Well, here we are, it's month seven or eight and yeah. it keeps going. You know, what's, what's work, what is, what have work and life been like uh, for you and your team and even your family over the last, uh, as this has drawn on, what's it been like? Yeah, well, certainly, um, you know, I think we've all begun to settle in. And so I, I'm, I'm glad Sarah and you reminded me of the last time that we uh, talked in this uh, setting because I can't believe it's been so long. But I'll maybe catch you up on a few things that I've done since we last spoke. So um, since we spoke last May, uh, it became apparent to me that one of the things I was not going to get to do is a floor walk. And what is a floor walk? So a floor walk is some time that I have blocked on my calendar where I go down to where my team sits because I I sit with my executive committee colleagues and my CEO, who is my boss. And then my team sits on two floors down from where I am. And so I had these spaces blocked on my calendar titled floor walk, and I would go down to the legal area and I would just walk the floors. I would talk to people, I'd check in, I'd say, Chip, how's it going? What are you working on? Uh, How's your dog? How's your mom? You know, whatever, just very casually walking the floor. Well, I noticed when we moved to work from home, I still had these blocked times on my calendar that said floor walk. And I hadn't yet figured out how am I gonna do a floor walk while I'm working from home? It's just not really possible. So I came up with the idea that I was going to schedule 15 minutes with every single member of my department. And I knew it was going to take me months, but just a check-in in lieu of the floor walk. And so I started my journey of doing 15 minutes with everybody. So I've been doing a lot of those um, since we last met. And those have been really great because um, they are, you know, it's not walking the floor, but it's a great way for me to check in with every single person. So, you know, lawyers, paralegals, contract administrators, uh, administrative assistants, and really just check in and see how people are doing. Now, it's interesting because in the beginning, um, you know, I think people were still kind of getting their footing. And then now it's great to see people seem really, you know, sort of settled in. They've got their, their work situation set up. They've got a routine. For many, if you think about it back then, um, you know, kids were home from school. Yeah. Right. And, and it's interesting because some kids are back in school full time. Some are in a hybrid situation where they go a couple days a week. Some are going a couple hours a day. Um, you know, some kids have gone off to college. Some kids are still doing uh, college online, maybe not home. Maybe parents are, you know, you're allowing them to you know, stay in an apartment or in dorms. So it, it just kind of runs the gamut. So it's interesting to see that people have found a way um, to kind of manage their day-to-day during this time. What kind of themes are you seeing? So that sounds like a theme of resilience. People have adapted and generally. Uh, are you seeing, um, you know, what, what, are you seeing fatigue? Are you seeing stresses? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing yeah. efficiencies, so, both maybe? So between the time I was last year um, and, you know, maybe, I don't know, a few months back, I think I I was definitely seeing signs of fatigue, um, not just on my team, but with myself. Um, It it seemed as though more and more was getting packed into the workday, which then, you know, I I couldn't figure out, was I working from home or was I living at work? Or, I mean, it just all seemed to blend together. And so I know for me, it sort of got to a point where I was 
on calls like this back to back, one after the other, starting anywhere as early as 7, 7.30 in the morning and going as late as 7 p.m. And I realized for me personally that that was not sustainable. Um, I had a little bit of guilty feelings about it, to be honest with you, because I thought, well, maybe everybody else can do this, but I don't think I can do this five days a week. Um, and then, you know, there's there's actual work I need to do and sort of thinking and responding to emails. And so I was finding myself doing that kind of into the, the wee hours of the night. And then, you know, because I always like to take off an hour to exercise. Um, and then I was also doing that on the weekends. And I just felt like, my gosh, this is not sustainable. So I began to talk to my assistant about sort of getting a better handle on the calendar and being a little bit more discerning about where I spend my time um, and, and having her hold me accountable because it's not just people working with Sue to get on my calendar. It's me also saying, oh, squeeze in Chip and squeeze in this other person. And then, you know, it creates this tension. So she is now very direct with me to say, you know what, you told me you didn't want this time to be scheduled. Now you're telling me to schedule these three meetings. I'm not going to do it because you told me to say no. So so we've got a good rhythm going there. And then as I've done my 15-minute check-ins with my team, I've also been very aware to check in with people to see how they're doing. And, and frankly, this has culminated in us creating no meeting blocks of time, which include no meeting days. Um, we were doing that over the summer. And to your earlier point, it was unclear how long is this going to last? Um, so we, we, had, we had created these no meeting blocks over the summer. And then as the summer was concluding and it became clear that this wasn't going to end at the end of the summer, we've carried the no meeting blocks forward um, and those are just times that we all agree, um, either as a company, because we have company-wide no meeting blocks, or as a department, that we're not scheduling meetings during these, you know, these hours, during this half day. And then I've also become more cognizant of the fact that people have different situations at home. So I'm an empty nester. I manage two very, very barky, if that's a word, dogs. Um, and so I am, you know, always thinking like, where are my dogs? What's my next call? Can they be around? Can they not? But I recognize that people are also managing children, children who need their lunch made, children who, you know, need to be supervised. Um, and so we began to realize, you know what, we've got a 12 to noon has to be a sacred time. Um, so we're going to we're going to make that a no meeting time to let people feed kids, feed themselves. Um, and so I've, I've been very hyper-focused, more than I was, because I actually went into 2020 very focused on wellness, more so my own, um, and then just encouraging people to do that as well. And when I first started at Discover, um, you know, one of the things that I worked on was, you know, sort of assessing my team and kind of restructuring my team. But I also worked on creating kind of our mission, vision, and values um, for the, the legal department. And one of the values that I added was wellness, because I really do think it's important. Now, it turns out that's even more important now um, than it once was. But I really encourage everyone to to focus on their own wellness and to try to create kind of daylight in the calendar, because you're not a machine, you cannot go, you know, 12 hour stretches every single day. That's I mean, that's, I love the way you, you listened uh, to your, even to yourself and then to your team and have altered some of the rhythms. Are you seeing, what, what results are you seeing from that? Oh, I think people are much happier now. And so you asked about that fatigue and stress. Um, you know, I don't want to add to that. 
And, you know, we are in a marathon, right? This is not a sprint. And so we've got to pace ourselves. And to your point around endurance, um, yeah, you could probably work, you know, a series of 12-hour days. If you're younger than me, maybe you could do it for a couple of weeks. If you're me, you're good for a week and a half. Um, but is it sustainable? No. And here's the thing. I think back when you and I spoke, it was a point in time where we thought, oh my gosh, you know, the world's kind of in this weird place, but nobody's going to leave. You know, nobody's hiring. Nobody's going to leave. Okay. That's changed. People are hiring. You can find a job now. I have hired people in a COVID environment where I've never seen them except on a screen. So, so, so this whole notion that your employees are captive is not true. Um, and so I want to create an experience and an environment where people continue to feel like, gee, I want to continue to work at Discover. I want to continue to be on Wanji's team, you know, or whatever team that they're on. Um, and so I need to sort of think longer term about kind of what is sustainable in terms of how people work, in terms of not burning people out, um, and just sort of making the most of the environment and situation that we find ourselves in. That's really interesting. It's it's important to know, like, so the War for Talent's back on, you know, that's the switch. Somebody flipped the switch sometime uh, a while, a little back, a while ago, so it really matters. Not that that should be the only reason. Um, and, you know, as, as, as Christians, we have the we have the whole history of the Sabbath and this idea that we really weren't meant to work every day all the time, that we need a break and we need a rest, a Godward, God-centered break where we're actually living out the fact that we actually don't run the world and that we're dependent on somebody else. Um, um, that's, that's awesome. Other, other things you think that just stand out as lessons that have per- perked up to the surface in this strange extended season, you know, professional ones, personal ones, spiritual ones. Yeah. So it's funny. I have been, um, you know, I, I try to be a positive person and I also have been trying to find the silver lining in all of this. And that's something I've always done because I do feel like I firmly believe and, you know, sort of my faith has me believing that everything happens for a reason, um, be it good or bad. Um, so in terms of silver lining, um, I often kind of think about little things that I had hoped for when I first got to discover that weren't happening. Um, One of which was, you know, the ability to work from home. Um, Not because I wanted to work from home per se, but I know a lot of people do want to work from home. Um, Going back to the war on talent, I know, um, you know, just in terms of discover, we, our office is in the suburbs, so we're not in the city of Chicago. Um, it's probably no surprise that many millennials don't want to work in the suburbs, nor do they want to live in the suburbs yet. They don't know that they want to live in the suburbs yet. Um, and if you're catching them before that time when they want to live in the suburbs, then it becomes hard. And so I used to kind of secretly long for a bit more flexibility, um, in how we worked. And it's interesting because I came from a company where that flexibility was just inherent. It's kind of part of the culture, how people worked. You could work from anywhere. It was no big deal. Nobody cared where you were. To a place where people expected you to be in the office every day. There was no kind of working elsewhere. You know, there was sort of this mindset that if you're not working here, you must not be working. Um, And so to see us swing the pendulum to a place where initially by the time I last saw you and was on the program, um, we were still in the mode of, you know what, this is just a temporary thing. 
you know, don't try anything funny. We're all going back to the office soon. Don't get used to this. Um, And in fact, in June, we announced good news. You can come back to the office. It's going to be great. You have to register, wear a mask, socially distanced. We'll take your temperature. It's going to be awesome. So we expected a bunch of people to register uh, and show up in the office. We had 5% occupancy in the office. Uh, That started in the beginning of June. Um, Based on incidents of COVID we were seeing, uh, three weeks after that, we said, okay, um, sorry, don't come in anymore. Um, And so there's some people who are essential workers because we are a bank, so they do need to come in. But unless you were an essential worker, we said, please do not come in. Um, And then we told people, we'll want you to come back. You can work from home. If you don't want to come in, you can work from home until January 2nd. Um, Okay, so clearly we have changed that. So summer, you know, kind of came and went. And I think maybe I lose track of time easily now, but let's say a month ago, um, we we told our workforce that they can continue to work from home until June. um, And that if they want to come into the office, they can come into the office. And so remember in June, I said we had 5% occupancy. We're now down to 3%. And that was as of two weeks ago. That could even have been reduced. Um, I'm not exactly sure. So clearly, you know, there is, I understand there's some people who don't want to be at home, can't be at home. Home's not a great place. I completely get that. And we want to account for that um, and provide people a place to work that's, you know, productive and safe and all of that. Um, But there's still not a large number of people who are rushing to report into the office. Wow. And our, our, our and we're shifting. We are we are shifting our mindset. So the the mindset from six months ago, which is you know just don't get too comfortable because you're coming back, has now shifted to all right. We will be making some announcements um, next year around kind of what the new working environment looks like, and I think we're going to be much more open to alternative work arrangements than we ever have been. So tying it back to the silver lining, that's one of the things that I wanted for our workforce because I also think we'll do a better job of recruiting people if we don't force people to come to our, you know, our just our lovely um, bucolic suburban town that we think is so great, but millennials are not as impressed, I would venture to guess. Interesting. Interesting. Are you, are you, have you been going in? Are you doing a hybrid? What about, what are you? So, no, I wouldn't call what I'm doing a hybrid. Um, I go in for our earnings call because I have to be in the room with my CFO and my CEO and my head of investor relations for our earnings call. Um, the call we have quarterly with analysts. Now, the interesting thing is I was just talking to, I'll call him out, the CFO from Salesforce. Um, and he was telling me that they do their earnings call all virtual which I thought was a bold move. Um, I actually like to be there. So I don't know, maybe it's sort of like me wanting to sort of have a little bit of control and to look people in the eye and to say, okay, question done. You don't need to say anymore. I just like to be there. So so I'm doing that quarterly um, with that small group of people. Um, but I do have colleagues who go in a little bit more frequently, um, but not no one, I don't know anyone who's going in every day. What a great conversation. We'll return to the conclusion shortly. But before we do, Ken and Sarah will tell us about a special experience we have for leaders like you. If you're a leader in your organization, then you already know it can be lonely at the top. And often leaders feel isolated from the organizations they lead because they can't talk safely about what's really going on in their heads and hearts. 
For Christians, it can be even harder to find business support and personal encouragement from a faith-based perspective. Our executive circles provide that kind of opportunity, Ken. These small groups of four to six members, they meet throughout the year, and they take you deeper with peers who want to both drive superior business outcomes and honor their faith at the same time. Executive circle members learn to lean on their community of peers for the courage to lead in innovative and authentic ways. Could an executive circle be right for you? Contact us at vocacenter.org coaching for a free consultation to match you with a group that's right for you. Now let's get back to our conversation. Um, how long do you see the pandemic? I mean, there's the alteration of the way you're going to work, which sounds like could be potentially permanent. You guys, you know, that, that piece of it. But are you guys talking time horizon for the pandemic and in terms of just planning for like how far out do you see it affect? Sure. It's a great question. And I, you know, I don't know the answer, but I talk to a lot of people, um, more so people that are in um, sort of consumer interacting businesses like retail and things like that. Um, you know, from what I'm hearing, it could be another year or two. Um, I'm now hearing people throw out 2022, um, which, you know, each time I hear a date further out in the future, it's a bit jarring because we're like, 2022, retire in 2022, kidding. Um, so, so, you know, we don't know. I mean, we're all, we, we were, you know, we're getting the same news around vaccines and how far um, some of the pharmaceutical companies are in their vaccine trials. Um, and so I think it's all dependent upon vaccines and therapeutics and when those are broadly available and look, we all realize not everyone's going to partake of vaccines, um, but you know, when will we get to a point when um, you've got kind of a critical mass of people who are are taking vaccines? And you know, in terms of broad, um, uh, kind of broadly making available the vaccines, I don't think that's going to be in the first quarter or the second quarter. Maybe you know, maybe we'll start to see some of that in the third quarter. But again, I'm I'm now hearing people talking about 2022. Yeah, it's 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 crazy, but yeah, it just keeps getting pushed out further and further. That's what we're hearing, uh, and senior leaders that are looking looking out. Um, yeah. So, which means we're gonna be working like this way for a, a while. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you know, last time when you were here, um, we we talked a little bit about your passion for diversity and how you've been working for that and how. Yeah this dynamic affects it, but it was before George Floyd and yeah. which is, and you know, that's an example of things that have happened over and over again, but, and then it just happened this week in Philadelphia. Um, yeah. So, but let's talk a little bit about like, how, how are you in, how, how those, those, those um, trauma, like those traumatic events, how have they landed for you? How's it, uh, how's it playing out at Discover? Sure. So um, I'll go back to uh, June, um, sort of it started, you know, I, I guess it, I want to say it started because it's been going on for 400 years, but it became acute um, with Ahmad Arbery. And so for me, um, personally and professionally, um, that just I remember going back six, seven months ago, however long ago the summer was, that was a bit of a tipping point for me. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was in our weekly um, executive committee staff meeting. And we always start those meetings with everyone sort of going around and, and talking about how they're doing. 
Um, and sometimes people, and I am guilty of it too, sometimes you just don't really feel like getting into how you're doing and you're like, you don't really want to know how I'm doing. So you just say, I'm, everything's fine. Like, I'm great. I'm fine. Um, but that day I decided I was not going to say I was great and fine. And I said, I'm neither great nor am I fine. And here's why. And I talked about um, Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery and how that was sort of affecting me and, you know, how I think about my husband just taking trash down to the end of our driveway and whether someone's going to think he shouldn't be there and what my result of that and so on and so forth. And, you know, and I think people on my executive team were surprised to hear that. Um, and, and it really generated a lot of good conversation around kind of either people's um, dinnertime conversations with their families or conversations that they then decided they needed to be having. And, and it just, you know, people started asking me questions and thanked me for sharing. Um, that was probably two weeks or so uh, before George 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 Floyd, um, and so after that happened, I immediately reached out to my CEO and I said, "We've got to say something." And we're not a big making public pronouncements and statements kind of company. I've worked in places where that is the shtick, and you know, we're constantly like taking a stand on this and taking a stand on that. That is not how we are at Discover, but I said to my CEO, we've got to say something. So he said, okay, what should we say? So myself, his communications person, um, and, and my CEO kind of worked on a statement. And I said, in that statement, not only, it's not just enough to say something. And the statement, in all honesty, when it was first being put together, was really watered down. It was like, oh, you know, this is too bad. And I was like, no, that's not enough. You have to demonstrate outrage. This is more than too bad. Like, this is an unacceptable we need to demonstrate outrage. We need to make donations to um, organizations that are fighting for social justice and put that in our communication. And then you and I need to host a listening session. So my CEO said, okay. And it was very clear that he wasn't sure what to do, which, you know, is not a indictment. It was just, you know, nobody knew really what to do, but I just, I was convicted that this is what we need to do. And so we get our notice out. My CEO and I hosted a listening session, um, which was sponsored by our Black Employee Network. Because of limitations with WebEx, which is what we use for video conferencing, we were only able to have 1,000 people um, on the WebEx. We have about um, 14,000 people at our company. So we announced that we were hosting the listening session. We, we said it was, you know, limited availability to participate. We had a thousand people um, dial in. It, it was black employees. It was allies. It was the, our entire executive committee. Um, and basically my CEO made some very brief opening remarks. I made some opening remarks. And then we said, we just, we want to listen. We want, you know, this to be a time of sharing begin. And then it was kind of crickets. Nobody said anything. So then I shared a story um, similar to the story that I just shared with all of you around sort of my feelings at, at my staff meeting where it was just sort of a tipping point because I couldn't pretend and I could no longer at that point of the summer pretend that everything was fine. And so because it wasn't. And so once I shared that, the floodgates opened and people shared and people cried and um, allies shared. And it's like nothing anyone has ever done in the workplace before. In my 25 plus years in corporate America, I've never had those kind of conversations at work before, nor has anyone else, frankly. And so it was very, it was very um, moving and, and, uh, and touching. And it really gave a lot of our Black employees an opportunity to talk about 
kind of how they feel, not just at work, it was one part that, but how they feel in their personal lives and, you know, being, you know, nervous about being in certain places and, um, you know, sort of being followed by police officers, like all these things that I think a number of our white allies were not, that they maybe have heard these things, but they weren't necessarily aware that colleagues were feeling these feelings. And, and, you know, I think sometimes people think you might be immune from it for some odd reason. I don't know why, but we're not. Um, and so just hearing that was great. So then after that, my CEO said, okay, we did this. We got all this great feedback. What do we do now? So I said, we have to, we have to form a task force. So he said, great, do you want to lead the task force? To which I said, no, I don't want to lead the task force. But I think I have a colleague who I think would be great to lead the task force. So she is leading the task force because she is a true ally. And from the very beginning of this, we had a lot of conversations about what she could be doing. And I'll just share one conversation that I had with her. Um, She's a white female, very concerned about this, um, wanted to know what she could be doing. I told her, um, one thing you can be doing is when you are in places where there are conversations that you deem racist and inappropriate, you should put a stop to them immediately. Do not tolerate them from your parents, from your siblings, from your friends, from other colleagues, coworkers, whether they're jokes, you know, let people know you, this is not acceptable. They should stop or at a minimum, you know, you can't force people to do anything. Uh, at a minimum, they shouldn't bring it around you. So she said, okay, great. Now this was in June. My expectation was that she would come back to me, I don't know, after Thanksgiving and say, Wanji, I listened to what you said. I heard some things. I shut it down. Great. She called me two days later and she said, I did what you said. And I said, I beg your pardon. She said, I did what you said. You said, if I hear something, I need to shut it down. And I thought, wow, okay, that was fast. But it just, that's when I decided, you know what, she's, she's really an ally and she'd be great to lead the task force. And so we formed this task force and basically um, sought volunteers to kind of help um, in order to kind of work on problems across three horizons. So kind of what we can do in the near term, kind of the low hanging fruit, the quick hits, quick wins we can do mostly internally at Discover to make it a better, more inclusive place. Um, what I'll call like the medium term things we can do, which are more programmatic. So uh, an example of that would be, um, you know, making sure our, our mid-year review and year-end review processes are equitable, making sure our job postings are inclusive and not like always resulting in the same kind of applicants applying, but they're, you know, because I think over time, your job postings, you just kind of change them around the edges. You, you know, you change the position, but you leave in the same stuff. And we realized there's probably more that we can do to make those a bit more inclusive. And then all the way to kind of horizon number three, which are kind of like bigger, more community focused things. So an example of something we did in the third horizon um, is we earmarked $5 million for black owned restaurants and, um, and, and initiated this program where you could nominate your favorite Black-owned restaurant and they would be um, uh, chosen at random once nominated to receive a $25,000 um, uh, just grant, like not a loan, they just get this money um, to put toward their business. And so um, we launched that program, which was more of a community-focused um, nationwide uh, effort to do that. So there are a lot of other you know, sort of activities going in these three horizons, but we wanted to um, you know, sort of get some quick wins on the board because we just knew 
that there was a lot of opportunity here for us to not only make Discover a better place for all of us to work, but to make our communities better. And the interesting thing here is that I think a lot of my colleagues who've been at Discover a long time who are in senior management, they always view Discover as a great place to work and a really inclusive place to work. And it's not to say we're a bad place to work and that we're not inclusive. Um, it's just this was very eye-opening because it demonstrated that there was still a lot of opportunity to make it an even better place to work. There was so much in that interview with Wanji. What are your takeaways, Ken and Chip? Well, I was really challenged by Wanji. You know, when I see people who are not like me in the workplace, I realize I have a choice of how to respond. I can either appreciate the beauty of God's multifaceted creation, or I can decide that diversity is a threat and it's time to protect myself. And Wanji's message was really about inclusion beginning with me. And as a leader, I need to be open, understanding, and willing to shut down racist speech when I hear it. It may even mean tasking someone on the team with the mission to make our organization a more inclusive place over time. Those are great thoughts, Ken. For me, you know, I, I dialed into this idea that as leaders, we need to constantly assess our pace. You know, is our pace sustainable? Because we're not going to be able to be resilient if we're constantly running at a, a pace that we can't we can't maintain. And I really appreciated, you know, Wanji parsing out the difference between how she ran sort of at the front end of this crisis and then shifting as things go along. I appreciated her candor about um, you know her own pace and needing to slow down a bit. And it's just challenged me to ask myself: Is my pace sustainable? And if it's not, because it's not, uh, what am I going to do about it? So I really, really appreciated that. You know, for me, I came away with the idea that leaders need to build team resilience. You know, she talked about creatively maintaining contact and connection with her team. And I think that applies to a lot of us because most of us are already dealing with a dispersed workforce and will most likely continue to. We need to build resilient, connected virtual teams with healthy workflows and schedules so that people can endure. So there we go. We've got three takeaways from Wanji's conversation. We've got the idea of inclusion and leaning into inclusion. We've got the idea of assessing your own pace and resilience and will you be able to endure and stay healthy as a leader? And then we've got the idea of taking that to your team and applying it to your team and intentionally building team resilience as we enter a new way, a new phase of working. So as we close, I want to remind you that everybody wins when a leader gets better. You win, your team wins, even your family and friends win. But it is impossible to get better alone. So sign up for a free consultation and we will explore your better together. This interview was recorded in front of a live virtual audience and you can be a part of that audience. Register to join us and shape the conversation with your own questions. You can sign up for the next live episode at vocacenter.org slash webinar. We'll see you next time on the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, where you get insight and inspiration to thrive at work.